here we are, guys, and we're in our final week. This was five weeks. It was the shortest study we've ever, ever done as Veritas women, but I think it fit this summer and fit uh, this topic of covenants. So we're going to finish it up uh, tonight. We're going to have some worship. We're going to uh, bring it home at our tables with discussion. And then uh, before we leave tonight, we'll give you guys a little bit of a taste of what we have planned uh, for the fall. Um, so let's dig in, guys. We are going to be talking about God's covenant with David. We'll be at a couple different places in our Bible. So go ahead and get your Bible out. Um, if you have your booklet and you want to take notes, open up to that page as well. Why don't you go ahead, just while you're getting settled, open up to, I think it's Psalm 23 that will be the first place we actually go to. So if you're just getting settled, that's a good place to start. All right, guys, here's what we're going to talk about as we start. Don't you hate waiting? Isn't waiting just the worst? Even the most patient of us have times where we hate to wait. Waiting for a late friend, waiting in traffic, of course, is kind of the classic example. How about waiting for like a diet plan to kick in or exercise? Like, wait, I've been eating sourdough three times a day and I haven't lost my 10 pounds. I don't understand why this isn't working. Um, how many times a week, guys, does a less than flattering side of us show up because we have to wait for something, right? It's one thing maybe if we're expecting a delay. You know, we know that there's construction on a road or we you know, already know the personality of the person that we're gonna meet or something like that. But isn't it? all the harder if we weren't expecting a delay or having expecting to wait. Waiting is a universal struggle. Waiting um, for things that maybe are a little bit more serious than, than traffic or coffee date, right? Let's, let's get right to it, guys. How about waiting for a spouse? Waiting for kids if we're in that season of life? How about waiting for a job? Often, though, we just move from one season of waiting to another. So even just with those examples, maybe we then end up waiting for the spouse, the husband to be what he promised to be or waiting for adult children to love the Lord or how about waiting for our jobs to have purpose or waiting for our jobs to be less exhausting. Waiting is not just universal in today's age, but guys, waiting actually connects us back in time to the people of God's covenant. Think about everyone that we've studied in the last month. Every single one of them had to wait. Right at the beginning, Eve had to wait for that promised offspring who would crush evil and death. She thought that that promise was gonna have an immediate ending and fulfillment of it. Guys, Eve had to wait. Noah had to wait for the rains. Abraham had to wait for a child. Moses and the Israelites had to wait for God's promised land right? And then this week, we studied the life of David, and we saw so many of God's promises come true. It seemed like the waiting was ending in David's story. And so as we have seen, whether you'd like to describe it as these covenants, these promises from God, they kind of layered on top of each other, or maybe you saw them more as opening up and piling on top of each other. Either way, we saw God's faithfulness be what wove the story together, what pulled us through from Genesis all the way through the New Testament. So tonight, let's start with David. Let's do a quick flyover of David. And let's start with the, the good days, the days of faithfulness, David's glory days. 
So think about these scenes with me. So many of these are great, like old school, Sunday school, VBS images. So let's think about the happy days and what would we have seen? So we imagine the day of David's election, the day that God chose David to be king. Imagine what we would have seen. What would we have seen as the prophet Samuel came to Bethlehem and passed over each older, maybe more impressive son? Not him. Nope, it's not going to be him. Not him. Not him. And then maybe we would wait and see the nervous energy that was building as they wait, waited for David to come in from the fields. And then we would have heard Samuel say, anoint him for he is the one. And we would see the sight of maybe Samuel's shaking hand from the adrenaline or from his age. And he said, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. As the story revealed again, guys, this covenant, the covenant with David would be way more about God's choosing than the credentials of man. Just like Noah, just like Abraham, just like Moses, this was going to be much more about God than about the men. That's what we would have maybe seen, but imagine with me what we would have heard. How about the day of David's victory over Goliath? Imagine the sounds on that day, guys. Imagine the thud as that rock hit Goliath's head as David crushed the head of evil. Imagine the sound as Goliath's snakescale armor clanked and clattered as he fell to the ground. Imagine that sound, the sound of a celebrant, a celebrant army as David's victory became their victory. And there was an uproar of war sounds as David, a second Adam, subdued the land and had dominion over the Philistines. That's maybe what we would have seen. That's maybe what we would have heard, guys. But now let's imagine what, it would have, what we might have felt if we were David. As he had God's promise on him that you will be king of Israel. But then we asked this question on our homework. He was told he'd be king of Israel, but then there was no royal entourage to lead him to a palace in Jerusalem. Instead, where did he go? No, he was led into a season of waiting. He became a king in waiting, in a wilderness of waiting. And we imagine him in this scene. And guys, don't we kind of see a faith like Abraham, right? We see a faith like Abraham. We imagine what it would have been like to minister to a paranoid Saul. And we see him a lot like the mediator Moses that we talked about last week as David allowed God's goodness to move through him to others. These are the glory days of David's life. But guys, let's ask a real life question rather than just moving on ahead, guys. Why do you think David didn't fight for the throne? He was given a promise. He was told, this is the plan. You're gonna be king of Israel. And yet he didn't go and fight for the throne. As he became a king in waiting, what was it that allowed him to display such self-control? What was it that allowed him to have such character? Or maybe if you were being really honest, you would say, wouldn't he have been justified to fight for the throne? It had been promised to him. Shouldn't he, couldn't he have demanded it? 
I think we're supposed to ask these questions of the story. How confusing would it have been? Put yourselves in his shoes. How confusing to have an identity spoken of over you, but then it not become an immediate reality. Isn't that our life? Did you feel that as you studied his story? I mean, haven't we learned, even just in this study, that our identity is God's beloved children? That our identity is royal priests? That our identity is co-heirs of an eternal home, a promised land? And yet, is that fully the reality that we're living in right now? Right? Maybe the version of this as little girls is we are told that we're princesses, right? But then when we wake up and realize, oh, wait, but I don't, well, princesses, this is perfect. This is why we did this theme, right? But then what happens when we don't get treated like a princess? At some point, we have to grow up and, and deal with this disappointment. I just wonder what it was about David that allowed him to handle a time of waiting and suffering. And I think that part of our answers come from the Psalms, this big old thick book in the middle of our Bible, mostly written by David. And so this week we went to Psalm 23, and I think it gives us some hints as to why he was able to wait well and to suffer well. It seems like from this Psalm and so many others, he knew who God was. And he knew his God-given identity. So maybe we picture after he's been anointed king, promised king, but he goes back to the fields to be a shepherd. And maybe it's then as he's saying, I don't really know what's going on, that he pins, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I want. Or maybe we picture a little bit later in David's season of waiting when he is playing the harp for a paranoid King Saul. And maybe it's then that he starts to understand that God renews his life and leads him along right paths for his name's sake. And maybe we're picturing when he is literally on the run from King Saul, Saul wants to kill him and he has done no wrong. Maybe it's then that we can picture David penning, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you, God, you're, you're with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And he would come back and he would replay, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David recited and rehearsed who God was and he replayed his anointing, the identity that God had given to him. Guys, as we went through our text this week, David's faithfulness and David's victories, they got us excited, and we felt like the covenant story was all coming together. Do you guys remember how we started this five weeks ago, and I told you how very, very bad my family is at puzzles, right? We pour out the puzzles, we're all excited to be a cute little family, and then within not even five minutes, my boys and I are out of there totally watching a movie, and Matt is left alone with a thousand-piece puzzle and we don't even apologize anymore. <laughs> but then I told you, a couple days later, we come back when there's like four pieces left. And Matt graciously lift, lets us take those last puzzle, pe puzzle pieces and click them. That's my puzzle sound effect, I guess. 
click them into space. And what do we do in that moment? And these moments, as the picture is coming together, we say, oh, we see it now. We see what all of these chaotic, ran seemingly random pieces are doing. They're coming together to form one picture. That's where we are in this Bible study, guys. We're, we're taking those last pieces and we're putting them into place and we're saying, oh, this is God's purpose for his people from Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and through to Christ, we see that God's purpose is that we would bear his image as his beloved children, and that by bearing his image, we would extend his glory and his goodness throughout the world as we rule for him, as we work with him. And so we looked at David's covenant, and it was built atop the other ones. We saw that it's unconditional. We saw that it's eternal. We saw that it's carried by the Lord. Once again, the covenant is carried by the Lord, not by man. And we saw that just in case we got confused about this, because David was sounding pretty impressive, David comes to God. He's like, Dave, or God, I have a great idea. I'll build a house for you. And God says, no, you won't. <laughs> Actually, someone from your lineage will build a house for me. And we understand that one of the good things from this is that we're not going to get confused. David may seem impressive here, but who delivers the covenant? God. He sits David down. Sit down. Calm down, man. You're not going to do that for me. And then God delivers a covenant to him, an unconditional covenant. And in this covenant, we heard about a royal victor. We heard about the many nations, the promised land, the people of blessing, everything all the way back from Genesis. It's all converging around the family of David. Those are the glory days of David, guys. This guy from Sunday school and VBS, these were his good days. But then we have a crash and burn situation, don't we? And I'm actually going to read it. Why don't you turn back, if you have your Bibles open, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's the dark, dark day in the story of David. 2 Samuel 11, in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officials and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. He sounds bored. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So, someone, so David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah, the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. There's enough for us to be convinced that this is the crash and burn situation. These are the dark days of King David. Guys, the reader is supposed to feel their hope just plummet, if just for a moment. What exactly is David doing in this situation? Well, what is he not doing? What he should be doing, living out of his God-given identity, is crushing more evil and subduing more land, right? That same mandate that we saw all the way in the Garden of Eden. He should have been crushing more evil, subduing more land, ruling for God. 
He was a warrior, and yet here he is at home chilling. There is a version of this in my life that is that's way less caustic, but it's still kind of, I felt like I have to confess this. There's, there are times where I relate uh, with, with a, maybe a simpler version of this, where maybe it's the end of a long day, and Matt, my husband, is working an extra long day, so I'm home, and I haven't really subdued my house. Let's just say it that way, right? The kids aren't fully in bed. You can still kind of hear them beating on each other in the basement. The dishes aren't done. Those soccer socks that I've been talking about all steady are everywhere. The dog hair is everywhere. The egg pan is probably still in the sink from that morning, right? I have not subdued my house at all. Matt comes home from an extra long day at work, and what am I doing? Eating chips, watching Netflix, right? And the chip crumbs are all over this, right? Right? It's kind of, and I, and what do I feel in that moment? Just absolute shame, right? I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't living out my identity. I was being a bump on a log and not finishing what God had given me to do for that day. And to a much uh, more evil degree, that is what has happened with David here. He has forgotten who God has made him to be. He sees his neighbor's wife bathing on the rooftop. He wants her, he takes her, and sin spirals. And here's our pattern that we saw, guys. He sees, he wants, he takes. Each week in the study, we asked a repeated question. When we saw these men who God, men and women that God entered into covenant with, choosing to sin instead, and we asked the question, why do you think they did that? Why did Adam and Eve take the fruit? Why did the Israelites make the golden calf? Much could be said about this, guys, but I think part of it is that they forgot who God was. Adam and Eve, although they're surrounded with this abundant garden, they in that moment saw God as a killjoy. All they could see was everything, the one tree that God said no to. They forgot all that he had promised. The Israelites, in making the golden calf, had so quickly forgotten what they had just heard, that God told them, I carried you out of slavery. I carried you out of Egypt on wings like a bird, like children in the arms of a father. And here's David. And I think part of what he's forgetting is he, for, he is forgetting that he is a conduit of God's blessing. He is someone that blessing is supposed to move through. And instead, he is deciding that he is supposed to be the terminal of blessing. He is supposed to be the place where blessing comes and gets poured down on and just stops right there. And so he sees, he wants, and he takes. Eve saw, she wanted she took. God made a tree called the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and yet Adam and Eve decide that it's up to them to decide the knowledge of good and evil. God gave David a purpose in being a warrior. David made his own definition of good. Good was staying home. So then we ask, well, what about us? Why do we get tripped up in sin? Do we fall into this pattern? Seeing, wanting, taking. I think that we also forget who God is. So often at the very core of why we sin, we forget who he is. And what I mean by this, guys, is we forget about what we talked about on the very first week of our study. From before time began, God is relational, God is abundant, God is Father, God is life-giving and loving from the beginning. That's where 
the story starts, and often our sin starts when we forget that, when we picture God as anything else but that. We forget it, and then what happens, I think, is we get confused about what we need versus what we want. And we start to make our own definitions of good and evil. Maybe God said this thing wasn't good, but I'm going to call it good. So where this intercepts with our study on covenants, guys, and where I want to camp out for just a couple minutes, is that I think that we often get confused about what exactly are the promises of God versus what are the expectations we put on God. And I know that a lot of you at your tables the last five weeks have talked about this, and it's been fun to hear about that. There's been almost teaser questions each week of the study asking us to acknowledge what what are promises of God that we feel like we haven't received yet? Or what's something that we've prayed for that we haven't received yet? Or what's something in our life that we asked God for and he said no? Could it be that we get confused about what are the things he's actually promised us? What are the promises for God's children versus what are the expectations we put on him? So for the sake of clarity, guys, I have just a couple examples. I think these are things that we think are promised to us, and I already introduced them in in our time together. Marriage, kids, a job, and how about we add health on there as well as well, guys. So often we think that these things are promised to us. And then what happens is when we have to wait for them, or maybe we get them, but then they start to slip through our fingers, or we get them, and then we lose them. Ladies, we are not just vulnerable to discouragement or despair in that moment, but we are vulnerable to sin as well. And ladies, please hear me say, these are good things. These are good things, and it's okay to want these things. And feeling discouraged as we wait is understandable. But what we need to understand, guys, is that our dreams for a certain life, our dreams for a safe or an easy life or for the people we love, are not promised to us. And it's hard to hear that, and it is hard to say it. So what do we do? Do we just will ourselves to change and get over it? Do we punish ourselves until we stop wanting someone that we've lost or we stop wanting a purposeful job or we stop wanting a cure for our ailment or our disease? Do we just step away from God until we've figured our crap out and then we come back to him so that he doesn't get annoyed with us for wanting these things? Does that fit into who we've seen God to be in the story of covenant? Do we stop praying for him and just hope that those desires go away? Elizabeth Elliot says this, My heart was saying, Lord, take away this longing. 
or give me that for which I long. The Lord answered, I must teach you to long for something better. My heart was saying, Lord, take away this longing or just give me that for which I long. And the Lord answered, no, I must teach you to long for something better. Ladies, these are just four examples of good gifts that God gives, but gifts are different than promises, covenant promises. Those things, as examples, are not promised to us, and it can feel like a a slap in the face to be told that, but can I tell you what is promised to us? What is promised to God's covenant children is God's nearness. What is promised to you is God's love. What is promised to you is God's forgiveness. What is promised to you is God's family, as many as the stars in the sky. What is promised to us as God's children is an eternal home with God. What is promised to us is rest for our souls now and then for eternity in the future. What is promised to us is the Holy Spirit our helper, our comforter. What is promised to us is a throne of grace for us when we are are in a time of need. What is promised to each one of us is an advocate before the Father. What is promised to us is an intercessor in Christ. What is promised to every single one of us in Christ is sustaining grace and ever-present help in times of trouble, a shield, a defender, a rock, a God who initiates, a God who sustains, a God who loves, a God who justifies and who redeems and who saves. These are our promises. And that's just a start. This is the wealth of the promises for the children of God. These are the things that we pray for. These are the things that we put our hope in, guys. And then we still can bring those desires to him. We still bring those requests. We still bring our hurts. We still bring our cries to him. Knowing that he knows our hearts as his children. Knowing that he knows our pains. He knows how long we've been waiting. He knows our loneliness. We could just build another list. So back to the story of David. Guys, not only does David crash and burn, but the story gets worse. This is where we say that puzzle seems to be falling to pieces because his sons start to follow suit and their sons and their sons and this lineage of, of kings messing up and falling into sin and being unfaithful, it makes up the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the first half of the Bible. And they begin to experience the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And what happens then is they enter into a time of waiting, a time of waiting. And although it had been told to them, as Crystal told us last week, you get the feeling through the the second half of the Old Testament that this is not what they're expecting. This time of waiting, this time of wilderness, this time of punishment, they they didn't see it coming, it seems. And 1,000 years pass after David and the covenant people of God are waiting. As our Old Testaments close, the people of God are waiting, waiting on the covenant promises. Let's open in our Bibles to Mark chapter 1.
In Mark chapter one, just like in the other gospel, guys, these are the stories of Jesus and these are his exciting days of faithfulness. These are these glory scenes. So let's imagine the scene as I read Mark chapter one, starting in verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Guys, imagine the scene with me. What is being described here? What would we see? This is the anointing of the king. Just like in David's story, this is Jesus's anointing by the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove with actually the same language that we read about in 1 Samuel. The power of God descends on him by the Spirit. And we hear the voice of God. So we have Jesus, we have the voice of God, we have the Spirit of God. This is the three-in-one God, once again, the triune God, and they're all, it's like all hands on deck, just like we saw at creation, guys. This sounds a lot like David's anointing. But then what happens after he's anointed, right? Let's ask the same question as we did with David. This is where he gets led to a palace to rule, right? Nope, pick up in verse 12. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Here we see Jesus subduing the animals. You see it? Here we see Jesus showing dominion, what Mark is doing when he writes this. He is depicting Christ as the second Adam. He's depicting him as the better Adam. And so we're supposed to ask the question, oh no, is he gonna be, is, is this Adam gonna be like the first one who failed? No, we actually see in kind of this poetic way that in these 40 days of testing, this new Adam, the Christ, would stand atop temptation, almost like a garden scene with these animals being subdued under his power, unlike the snake who ruled over Adam and Eve. So then we're supposed to ask the question, oh no, is this this new true Israelite, Jesus, is he going to be like the first Israelites? The first Israelites who fell to doubt and weakness in their 40 years in the wilderness, and we gladly say, no, look, he is the perfectly obedient son, trusting in his father. Guys, here we have another king in waiting. Here we have another beloved son. Here we have the anointed one who knew he didn't need to fight for the throne. He didn't have to go right to the throne because he knew the truth about God. He knew he was father, and he knew the promise that God had given him from before time began. But there was also a dark, dark day for this true and better David. And we imagine the scene that we have gone to almost every week in our story, the dark, dark day for this son of David. And we imagine what would it be like to hear Jesus, the son of David, be enthroned on a criminal's cross with a crown of thorns, with a purple robe, with a sign above him that said, King of the Jews. What would it be like to hear the thud of the nails 
going into his wrists, going into his ankles. Guys, imagine with me what it would be like to see not just this true and better David, but this true and better Moses as he bridged the gap between heaven and earth. And as we would hear him cry out with like a priestly cry, like how Moses was a mediator, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We would hear this son of promise, this beloved son cry out to his father like the scene in Abraham's day. But unlike that day that we just relived with David, rather than a, an uproar of joy and victory, rather than a celebrant noise, guys, in this moment when victory over sin and death was accomplished, it was quiet. It was silent. As Jesus' victory became our victory. Guys, do we see this? Do we see that every sin that you and I would commit, every time that we would see and want and take, and see and want and take, every time that we would do that, he took that sin upon his shoulders. And nobody could see what was happening at that time, but rather than taking, he was laying it down. Rather than taking what was rightfully his, guys, he was surrendering because of his love for us. And in dying this criminal's death, guys, this was the lethal blow against death. This was a decisive blow against sin, against evil, as he crushed the head of the serpent. And in that moment, the covenants were fulfilled. In the moment of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, all of the Old Testament covenants were coming to fruition as the new covenant was initiated. This is the climactic moment in our study. So why in the world are we still suffering? Why, do we, why can't we just leave with this good news? Guys, the covenants have been fulfilled. That's the last answer. Bye. See you in the fall. We have to acknowledge this tension that we're claiming that the covenants have been fulfilled. We are living on this side of the cross where God's promises have come true, and yet you're suffering. Where's the promise for the family of believers, the promise for a land of peace? Where's all those promises about abundant blessings? Have they or have they not come true? Yes and no. We live in the already, not yet. The covenants have been fulfilled. Christ has come so that we can have a yes for all of the promises of God but we also live in the not yet. And what that means, here's the simple answer for that. What that means is we have more to look forward to. We have reason to look up and to look ahead. We have a wedding to anticipate. We have a day of jubilee coming for us. We have a day of celebration coming, guys. There is still another level of fulfillment to come. 
So that means that where we are right now is in a time of waiting. We are so often in a time of wilderness. And so what do we do? Maybe we've learned a lot of facts. Maybe we've gotten a better grip on the Bible story this month. But we've got to know how to apply it. We've got to know that these big truths, that these connecting pieces of this big, big story, that they are supposed to then work their way throughout in our life. How then do we respond to the fact that the promises have come true, but we have something to look forward to? We have a day when the promises will be all the more a reality in our lives. Maybe one of the most simple answers that we can start with is our response is to trust. Guys, what does it look like for you to trust God? What does it look like for you to trust him down in the details of your life? Maybe the certain relationships that you haven't yet handed over to him that you're just going to try and manage on your own. But ladies, maybe more than the details and the objective list we can make, what does it look like to trust the Lord in your areas of hurt or loss or confusion? Those things that maybe you can acknowledge they weren't promises, but they were good gifts and now they're gone. the things that you believe would help you serve the Lord, would help you experience his goodness, but God has not provided them. Those questions that don't yet have answers, what does it look like for you to trust God? Or to say to him, God, I believe. Would you also help my unbelief? What does it look like to take the truth that God is the stronger party in the covenant? He initiates with us, guys, but then he sustains us. He's the one that brings us and elects us and calls us. But then once we are in relationship with us, he doesn't just bail. He carries us still. And the more that we acknowledge that, the more that we will be freed up to run hard after him. We're going to end with a worship song now to just give us some space to duke it out with the Lord, guys. To be honest with him, to think about that space that we need to trust him in. And then we're going to go to our tables for a bit to talk about these things, and then we're going to close in a responsive time of worship. So I think for... You want them to stand for this first song? Yeah, if you guys will stand and we're going to.